Chapter four of the Conquest of Bread. This is a LibraVox recording. All LibraVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibraVox.org. Recording by Enko. The Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropotkin. Expropriation. Part one. It is told of Rothschild that seeing his fortune threatened by the revolution of eighteen forty eight, he hit upon the following stratagem. I am quite willing to admit, said he, that my fortune has been accumulated at the expense of others. But if it were divided tomorrow among the millions of Europe, the share of each would only amount to four shillings. Very well, then, I undertake to render to each his four shillings, if he asks me for it. Having given due publicity to his promise, our millionaire proceeded as usual to stroll quietly through the streets of Frankfurt. Three or four persons by asked for their four shillings, which he dispersed with a sardonic smile. His stratagem succeeded, and the family of the millionaire is still in possession of its wealth. It is in much the same fashion that the shrewd heads among the middle classes reason when they say, Ah, expropriation! I know what that means. You take all the overcoats and lay them in a heap, and everyone is free to help himself and fight for the best. But such jests are irrelevant as well as flippant. What we want is not a redistribution of overcoats, although it must be said that even in such a case the shivering folk would see advantage in it nor do we want to divide up the wealth of the rothschilds what we do want is so to arrange things that every human being born into the world shall be ensured the opportunity in the first tense of learning some useful occupation and of becoming skilled in it and next that he shall be free to work at his trade without asking leave of master or owner and without handing over to landlord or capitalist the lion's share of what he produces as to the wealth held by the rothschilds or the vanderbals it will serve us to organize our system of communal production the day when the laborer may till the ground without paying away half of what he produces the day when the machines necessary to prepare the soil for rich harvest are at the free disposal of the cultivators the day when the worker in the factory produces for the community and not for monopolists that day will see the workers clothed and fed, and there will be no more Rothschilds or other exploiters. No one will then have to sell his working power for a wage that only represents a fraction of what he produces. So far so good, say our critics. But you will have Rothschilds coming in from the outside. How are you to prevent a person from amassing millions in China, and then settling amongst you? How are you going to prevent such a one from surrounding himself with lackeys and wage slaves, from exploiting them and enriching himself at their expense? You cannot bring about a revolution all over the world at the same time. Well then, are you going to establish custom houses on your frontiers to search all who enter your country and confiscate the money they bring with them? Anarchist policemen firing on travellers would be a fine spectacle. But at the root of this argument there is a great error. Those who propound it have never paused to inquire whence come the fortunes of the rich. A little thought would, however, suffice to show them that these fortunes have their beginnings in the poverty of the poor. When there are no longer any destitute, there will no longer be any rich to exploit them. Let us glance for a moment at the Middle Ages, when great fortunes began to spring up. A feudal baron seizes on a fertile valley, but as long as the fertile valley is empty of folk, our baron is not rich. His length brings him in nothing. He might as well possess a property in the moon. What does our baron do to enrich himself? He looks out for peasants, for poor peasants. If every peasant farmer had a piece of land, free from rent and taxes, if he had in addition the tools and the stock necessary for farm labour, who would plough the lands of the baron? 
everyone will look after his own but there are thousands of destitute persons ruined by wars or drought or pestilence they have neither horse nor plough iron was very costly in the middle ages and a drought horse still more so all these destitute creatures are trying to better their condition one day they see on the road at the confines of our barren state a notice board indicating by certain signs adapted to their comprehension that the labourer who is willing to settle on his state will receive the tools and materials to build his cottage and sow his fields and a portion of land rent free for a certain number of years the number of years is represented by so many crosses on the signboard and the peasant understands the meaning of these crosses so the poor wretches come to settle on the baron's land they make roads drain the marshes build villages in nine or ten years the baron begins to tax them five years later he increases the rent then he doubles it and the peasants accept these new conditions because he cannot find better ones elsewhere little by little with the aid of laws made by the barons the poverty of the peasant becomes the source of the landlord's wealth and it is not only the lord of the manor who preys upon him a whole host of usurers swoop down upon the villagers multiplying as the wretchedness of the peasants increases that is how these things happen in the middle ages and today is it not still the same thing if there were free lands which the peasant could cultivate if he pleased would he pay fifty pounds to some shebel of a duke open footnote shebel of a duke is an expression coined by carlyle it is a somewhat free rendering of kropotkin's monsieur le vicomte but i think it expresses his meaning translator Close footnote. for condescending to sell him a scrap would he burden himself with a leech which absorbed a third of the produce would he on the metayer system consent to give half of his harvest to the landowner but he has nothing so he will accept any conditions if only he can keep body and soul together while he tills the soil and enriches the landlord so in the nineteenth century just as in the middle ages the poverty of the peasant is a source of wealth to the landed proprietor part two the landlord owes his riches to the poverty of the peasants and the wealth of the capitalist comes from the same source take the case of a citizen of the middle class who somehow or other finds himself in possession of twenty thousand pounds he could of course spend his money at the rate of two thousand pounds a year a mere bagatelle in these days of fantastic senseless luxury but then he would have nothing left at the end of ten years so being a practical person he prefers to keep his fortune intact and win for himself a snug little annual income as well this is very easy in our society for the good reason that the towns and villages swarm with workers who have not the wherewithal to live for a month or even a fortnight so our worthy citizen starts a factory the banks hasten to lend him another twenty thousand pounds especially if he has a reputation for business ability and with this round sum he can command the labour of five hundred hands if all the men and women in the countryside had their daily bread assured and their daily needs already satisfied who would work for our capitalists at a wage of half a crown a day while the commodities one produces in a day sell in the market for a crown or more unhappily we know it all too well the poor quarters of our towns and the neighbouring villages are full of needy welchers whose children clamour for bread so before the factory is well finished the workers hasten to offer themselves where a hundred are required three hundred besiege the doors and from the time his mill is started the owner if he only has average business capacities will clear forty pounds a year out of each mill hand he employs 
he is thus able to lay by a snug little fortune and if he chooses a lucrative trade and has business talents he will soon increase his income by doubling the number of men he exploits so he becomes a personage of importance he can afford to give dinners to other personages the local magnates the civic legal and political dignitaries with his money he can marry money by and by he may pick and choose places for his children and later on perhaps get something good from the government a contract for the army or for the police his gold breeds gold till at last a war or even a rumour of war or a speculation on the stock exchange gives him his great opportunity nine-tenths of the great fortunes made in the united states are as henry george has shown in his social problems close bracket, the result of knavery on a large scale assisted by the state in europe nine-tenths of the fortunes made in our monarchies and republics have the same origin there are not two ways of becoming a millionaire this is the secret of wealth find the starving and destitute pay them half a crown and make them produce five shillings worth in the day amass a fortune by these means and then increase it by some lucky speculation made with the help of the state need we go on to speak of small fortunes attributed by the economics to forethought and frugality when we know that mere saving in itself brings in nothing so long as the pence saved are not used to exploit the famishing take a shoemaker for instance grant that his work is well paid that he has plenty of custom and that by dint of strict frugality he contrives to lay by from eighteen pence to two shillings a day perhaps two pounds a month grant that our shoemaker is never ill that he does not half starve himself in spite of his passion for economy that he does not marry or that he has no children that he does not die of consumption suppose anything and everything you please well at the age of fifty he will not have scrapped together eight hundred pounds and he will not have enough to live on during his old age when he is past work assuredly this is not how fortunes are made but suppose our shoemaker as soon as he has laid by a few pence thriftily and conveys them to the savings bank and that the savings bank lends them to the capitalist who is just about to employ labour that is to exploit the poor then our shoemaker takes an apprentice the child of some poor wretch who will think himself lucky if in five years time his son has learned the trade and is able to earn his living meanwhile our shoemaker does not lose by him and if trade is brisk he soon takes a second and then a third apprentice by and by he will take two or three working men poor wretches thankful to receive half a crown a day for work that is worth five shillings and if our shoemaker is in luck that is to say if he is keen enough and mean enough his working men and apprentices will bring him in nearly one pound a day over and above the product of his own toil he can then enlarge his business he will gradually become rich and no longer have any need to stint himself in the necessaries of life he will leave a snug little fortune to his son that is what people call being economical and having frugal temperate habits at bottom it is nothing more nor less than grinding the face of the poor commerce seems an exception to this rule such a man we are told buys tea in china brings it to france and realizes a profit of thirty per cent on his original outlay he has exploited nobody nevertheless the case is quite similar if our merchant had carried his bills on his back well and good in early medieval times that was exactly how foreign trade was conducted and so no one reached such giddy heights of fortune as in our days very few and very hardly earned were the gold coins which the medieval merchant gained from a long and dangerous voyage it was less the love of money than the thirst of travel and adventure that inspired his undertakings nowadays the method is simpler a merchant who has some capital need not tire from his desk to become wealthy he telegraphed to an agent telling him to buy a hundred tons of tea he freights a ship and in a few weeks in three months if it is a sailing ship the vessels brings him his cargo he does not even take the risk of a voyage 
for his tea and his vessel are insured and if he has expended four thousand pounds he will receive more than five or six thousand that is to say if he has not attempted to speculate in some novel commodities in which case he runs a chance of either doubling his fortune or losing it altogether now how could he find men willing to cross the sea to travel to china and back to endure hardship and slavish toil and to risk their lives for a miserable pittance how could he find dock laborers willing to load and unload his ships for starvation wages how because they are needy and starving go to the seaports visit the cookshops and taverns on the quays and look at these men who have come to hire themselves crowding round the dock gates which they besiege from early dawn hoping to be allowed to work on the vessels look at these sailors happy to be hired for a long voyage after weeks and months of waiting all their lives long they have gone to the sea in ships and they will sail in over still until they have perished in the waves enter their homes look at their wives and children in rags leaving one knows not how till the father's return and you will have the answer to the question multiply examples choose them where you will consider the origin of all fortunes large or small whether arising out of commerce finance manufacturers or the land everywhere you will find that the wealth of the wealthy springs from the poverty of the poor this is why an anarchist society need not fear the advent of a Rothschild who would settle in its midst if every member of the community knows that after a few hours of productive toil he will have a right to all the pleasures that civilization procures and to those deeper sources of enjoyment which art and science offer to all who seek them he will not sell his strength for a starvation wage no one will volunteer to work for the enrichment of your Rothschild. his golden guineas will be only so many pieces of metal useful for various purposes but incapable of breeding more in answering the above objection we have at the same time indicated the scope of expropriation it must apply to everything that enables any man be he financier mill owner or landlord to appropriate the products of others toil our formula is simple and comprehensive we do not want to rob any one of his coat but we wish to give to the workers all those things the lack of which makes them fall an easy prey to the exploiter and we will do our utmost that none shall lack aught that not a single man shall be forced to sell the strength of his right arm to obtain a bare subsistence for himself and his babes this is what we mean when we talk of expropriation this will be our duty during the revolution for whose coming we look not two hundred years hence but soon very soon part three the ideas of anarchism in general and of expropriation in particular find much more sympathy than we are apt to imagine among men of independent character and those for whom idleness is not the supreme ideal still our friends often warn us take care you do not go too far humanity cannot be changed in a day so do not be in too great a hurry with your schemes of expropriation and anarchy or you will be in danger of achieving no permanent result now what we fear with regard to expropriation is exactly the contrary we are afraid of not going far enough of carrying out expropriation on too small a scale to be lasting we would not have a revolutionary impulse arrested in meek career to exhaust itself in half measures which would content no one and while producing a tremendous confusion in society and stopping its customary activities would have no vital power would merely spread general discontent and inevitably prepare the way for the triumph of reaction there are in fact in a modern state established relations which it is practically impossible to modify if one attacks them only in detail 
they are always within wheels in our economic organization the machinery is so complex and interdependent that no one part can be modified without disturbing the whole this becomes clear as soon as an attempt is made to expropriate anything let us suppose that in a certain country a limited form of expropriation is effected for example that as it has been suggested more than once only the property of the great landlords is socialized while the factories are left untouched or that in a certain city house property is taken over by the commune but everything else is left to private ownership or that in some manufacturing centre the factories are communalized but the land is not interfered with the same result would follow in each case a terrible shattering of the industrial system without the means of reorganizing it on new lines industry and finance would be at a deadlock yet a return to the first principles of justice would not have been achieved and society would find itself powerless to construct a harmonious whole if agriculture were freed from great landowners while industry still remained the bond slave of the capitalist the merchant and the banker nothing would be accomplished the peasant suffers today not only in having to pay rent to the landlord he is oppressed on all hands by existing conditions he is exploited by the tradesman who makes him pay half a crown for a spade which measured by the labour spent on it is not worth more than sixpence he is taxed by the state which cannot do without its formidable hierarchy of officials and finds it necessary to maintain an expensive army because the traders of all nations are perpetually fighting for the markets and any day a little quarrel arising from the exploitation of some part of asia or africa may result in war then again the peasant suffers from the depopulation of country places the young people are attracted to the large manufacturing towns by the bait of high wages paid temporarily by the producers of articles of luxury or by the attractions of a most tiring life the artificial protection of industry the industrial exploitation of foreign countries the prevalence of stock jobbing the difficulty of improving the soil and the machinery of production all these agencies combine nowadays to work against agriculture which is burdened not only by rent but by the whole complex of conditions in a society based on exploitation thus even if the expropriation of land were accomplished and everyone were free to till the soil and cultivate it to the best advantage without paying rent agriculture even though it should enjoy which can by no means be taken for granted a momentary prosperity would soon fall back into the slough in which it finds itself today the whole thing would have to be begun over again with increased difficulties the same holds true of industry take the converse case instead of turning the agricultural laborers into peasant proprietors make over the factories to those who work in them abolish the master manufacturers but leave the landlord his land the banker his money the merchant his exchange maintain the swarm of idlers who live on the toil of the workmen the thousand and one middlemen the state with its numberless officials and industry will come to a standstill finding no purchasers in the mass of peasants who would remain poor not possessing the raw material and unable to export their produce partly on account of the stoppage of trade and still more so because industry is spread all over the world the manufacturers would feel unable to struggle and thousands of workers would be thrown upon the streets these starving crowds would be ready and willing to submit to the first schemer who came to exploit them they would even consent to return to the old slavery and the promise of guaranteed work or finally suppose you oust the landowners and hand over the mills and factories to the worker without interfering with a swarm of middlemen who drain the product of our manufacturers and speculate in corn and flour meat and groceries in our great centres of commerce then as soon as the exchange of produce is slackened 
as soon as the great cities are left without bread while the great manufacturing centers find no buyers for the articles of luxury they produce the counter-revolution is bound to take place and it would come trading upon the slain sweeping the towns and villages with shot and shell indulging in orgies of proscriptions and deportations such as was seen in france in eighteen fifteen eighteen forty eight and eighteen seventy one all is interdependent in a civilized country it is impossible to reform any one thing without altering the whole therefore on the day a nation will strike at private property under any one of its forms territorial or industrial it will be obliged to attack them all the very success of the revolution will impose it besides even if it were desired it would be impossible to confine the change to a partial expropriation once the principle of the divine right of property is shaken no amount of theorizing will prevent its overthrow hereby the slaves of the field thereby the slaves of a machine if a great town paris for example were to confine itself to taking possession of the dwelling houses of the factories it would be forced also to deny the right of the bankers to levy upon the commune a tax amounting to two million pounds in the form of interest for former loans the great city would be obliged to put itself in touch with the rural districts and its influence would inevitably urge the peasants to free themselves from the landowner it would be necessary to communalize the railways that the citizens might get food and work and lastly to prevent the waste of supplies and to guard against the trust of the court speculators like those to whom the paris commune of seventeen ninety three fell a prey it would have to place in the hands of the city the work of stocking its warehouses with commodities and apportioning the produce some socialists still seek however to establish a distinction of course they say the soil the mines the mills and manufacturers must be expropriated these are the instruments of production and it is right we should consider them public property but articles of consumption food clothes and dwellings should remain private property popular common sense has got the better of this subtle distinction we are not savages who can live in the woods without other shelter than the branches the civilized man needs a roof a room a hearth and a bed it is true that the bed the room and the house is a home of idleness for the non-producer but for the worker a room properly heated and lighted is as much an instrument of production as the tool or the machine it is the place where the nerves and sinews gather strength for the work of the morrow the rest of the workman is the daily repairing of the machine the same argument applies even more obviously to food the so-called economists who make the just mentioned distinction would hardly deny that the coal burnt in a machine is as necessary to production as the raw material itself how then can food without which the human machine could do no work be excluded from the list of things indispensable to the producer can this be a relic of religious metaphysics the rich man's feast is indeed a matter of luxury but the food of the worker is just as much a part of production as the fuel burnt by the steam engine the same with clothing we are not new guinea savages and if the dainty gowns of our ladies must rank as objects of luxury there is nevertheless a certain quantity of linen cotton and woolen stuff which is a necessity of life to the producer the shirts and trousers in which he goes to his work the jacket he slips on after the day's toil is over are as necessary to him as the hammer to the anvil whether we like it or not this is what the people mean by a revolution as soon as they have made a clean sweep of the government they will seek first of all to ensure to themselves decent dwellings and sufficient food and clothes free of capitalist right and the people will be right the methods of the people will be much more in accordance with science than those of the economists who draw so many distinctions between instruments of production and articles of consumption the people understand that this is just the point where the revolution ought to begin
and they will lay the foundations of the only economic science worthy the name a science which might be called the study of the needs of humanity and of the economic means to satisfy them and of expropriation recording by Enco.